Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. God, thank you for allowing us to see another day. God, thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. God, as we consider joy this morning, God, I pray that we would all fight for it. God, I pray that we would strive to have joy in our lives. And we recognize that not as something that comes naturally, but something that must be pursued. God, I pray that we would chase after it with everything that we have. And ultimately, I pray that we would look to you for it and not ourselves. Your son, Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this morning, I want to look at the scriptures and see how we can have joy. A lot of Christians try different things to have joy, but just end up endlessly swinging in the air for it. If you've ever seen the movie Boys in the Hood, uh, you remember a scene where Ricky was shot and his best friend Trey was so upset and angry that he was just swinging at the air out of being upset, right? I think that that's sometimes how we look when we are seeking joy or looking for joy. We're just aimlessly swinging. So this morning I want to look at this passage, Psalm 33, and see how we can fight for joy. And I'm going to start off by making this statement. We will not have joy if we do not have the right view of God. Let me say that again. We will not have joy if we do not have the right view of God. We won't have the right view of God if we fail to see the differences between us and him. This morning, the psalmist is giving us the blueprint to recognizing God for who he is, which should lead us to having joy. So my first point this morning is that God speaks and God creates. We find joy in that it is God who creates. There is literally no one like God. Can I get an amen right there? <laughs> or a fax. There is literally no one like God. If there is, then by logic, then God is no longer deemed worthy of all of our praise. One of the, the biggest differences between us and God is something that people who subscribe to the prosperity gospel or the name it and claim it or blab it and grab it or whatever you want to say would disagree with, and that is our lack of ability to speak things into existence. In our passage this morning in verse 6, it says that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. In verse 8, it says, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Ladies and gentlemen, what the psalmist said about God and what Paul said about God in Romans 14 when he said, who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist is only true of God. It was God who spoke and things happened and those things happened instantly. God said, let there be light, and there was? Now, what does this have to do with anything? How does this fit into 
the chapter and what does this have to do with joy? Well, what I believe that the psalmist is trying to get, trying to, get to is this. God is simply to be praised because he can do things that we cannot do. I submit this to you this morning. There is something innately within us that wants to be in charge. We desire to run our lives. This is what happened in the Garden of Eden, and we're fighting against the same urge today. In William Ernest Hensley's poem entitled Invictus, he focuses on the human will to overcome hardships and adversities. As a matter of fact, there are a number of my friends who had to learn this poem when they were online for their respective fraternities. Now, being online for a fraternity means that you want to be a part of this organization, and uh, there are some, some things that you have to do in order to, to complete that process, all right? There's, there's money that you have to pay, and they will have you just doing all kind of silly things. And, and, and it can be difficult depending on what organization you're online for. Um, yeah, it can, be, it can be difficult. And so it, it makes sense that they would have to learn this poem since they were about to go through months of hazing. Now, they would say that they don't haze. But come on. I'm not, I'm not part of a, a Greek organization, but I have close friends who are. And even though every single organization may not do it, it is done, all right? So it makes sense that they would have to learn this poem. The word Invictus translates from the Latin as unbeaten or unconquerable. So they're at the time soon to be fraternity brothers, wanted them to be mentally prepared for the journey ahead of them. So they were to learn this poem line by line. Now from beginning to the end, the poet, the poet writes about the courage, the boldness, and the tenacity of someone who has been through storms. And it ends with these two lines. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now to be clear, this is not the message of the Bible. Especially concerning the believer, but rather the believer is under the authority of Christ. That's why we must carefully examine how we view Jesus. Now, if you grew up in church like me, you've probably heard the terms Lord and Savior together. Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. And the reality is we're cool with Jesus being our Savior, but not so cool with him being our Lord. Now, why is that the case? Well, Lord means to have authority over or to rule over. So, no, we are not the masters of our soul. And we'll get into that later. Back to our innate desire to rule. Could you imagine how terrible things would be if we could actually make things happen based off of what we said or wanted? Now, I, I get that the world is not ideally how most people think that it should be, but I believe that it could be much worse if we could actually speak things into existence. Let's go to scripture to see how bad one's seemingly good desires could have turned out. After Peter correctly identified Jesus as the Christ, Jesus told him and the rest of the disciples that he had to be killed. Now, this is where Peter took Jesus to the side and said, okay, you've been teaching me, let me teach you, all right? And, Jesus, and Peter said, I will not stand for it. I will not have you killed. 
and all of a sudden, the student becomes the teacher. Now, this whole time, Jesus had been teaching Peter. Peter thought it was his turn. Peter said, I'm not going to let it go down like that. And Jesus' response was sharp. He accused Peter of being influenced by Satan, and Jesus told him, you're not setting your minds on things of God, but on things of man. Could you imagine how terrible things would be if we could actually make things happen based off of what we said or wanted? Now, I'm about to make a statement, and some of y'all are going to come to me after service, or some of y'all are going to text me or hit me up on Facebook off of what I said. Just bear with me for a second, all right? Peter, in his desire to control, wanted for Jesus to not go to the cross. Do you see how bad the human will can be, even with seemingly good desires? If what Peter wanted had played out, he would have, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, what did I just say? Humanly speaking, okay, Peter would have, humanly speaking, jeopardized salvation for all of us. Let's keep going. In the very next scene, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, within two verses, we see the need and the call to die to ourselves. As a matter of fact, this is the prerequisite that Jesus gives us for being his disciple. If you follow me, you have to deny yourself. There can't be two people simultaneously sitting on the throne of your heart. There's only room for one person at a time, and Jesus made it clear from the beginning that self-denial is a must. Now, why? Jesus says that there is a difference between the things of God and the things of man. One leads to joy, and the other leads to despair. One gives us hope, and the other leaves us discouraged. One strengthens our faith, and the other one mocks it. So we find joy in the fact that God speaks and God controls, and he hasn't placed that burden on us. Now what's difficult for us is submitting to that. I think of Job who was led to question God because of his troubles. Now for the longest, I thought that Job, that God was giving Job what we call a good old straightening, right? But then I realized that what Job was uh, what God was doing for four chapters was something different. Listen to what God asked Job. God asked Job, where were you when I laid the, the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I make the cloud its, clouds its garment and wrap it in thick darkness? When I fix limits for it and set its door and bars in place? When I said that this far you may come and no farther, here is where your waves halt. So I used to chuckle when I read this saying, yeah, get him, God, until I realized that God is not attacking Job right here. But he's saying, Job, if you can't answer these basic questions on, on how I made the earth, then you really won't fully understand me. And that's okay. I'm not asking you to fully understand me. I'm just asking you to trust me. If I can lay the foundation of the earth and keep the sea from bursting all over the place, then surely I'm wise enough to handle 
all of your affairs, even when it does not feel good. I'm so grateful to be surrounded around people who f speak freely about their situations. I remember a couple weeks at Bible study, we were talking about Paul and his imprisonment in the book of Philippians, and I asked the question, what have you gone through that didn't feel good, but you can look back and see God's hand in the situation? And I was uniquely uh, just encouraged by, by Mike's, Mike Roach's response. He says that he has not only learned to not only look back on God moving in situations, but has found comfort in the fact that he can trust God in current situations. Mike, I don't want to misquote you. You said that, right? You don't know? All right, we're going to say that you did. All right? All right, cool. <laughs> he said it. All right. Or I think about someone else who has been struggling with wanting to know every detail for every moment in their life. And the other day, she, she sent a, a text saying, I think God's really changing me to trust him and let go of my need to know the future and all things. We find joy when we trust God as creator and author and, realizes that, and realize that in his wisdom, he has not burdened us with that task. So God is the only one who creates by speaking. And because of that, God wants to, us to trust him. In other words, stop trying to play a role that God has not created you to play. So God speaks and God creates. Next point, God sees. What's the next point? In our text, we see, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people who he chose for his inheritance. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything that they do. Now, on, on a personal note, uh, it's always good if you grew up in church like me, you hear all of these different phrases that you just have tucked away in the li library in the file cabinet of your mind. So at any given time, you would hear somebody, either, if they were leading worship, or you would hear the preacher say that, and y'all help me if you know it, that God sits high and he, he looks low. So on a personal note, I'm just encouraged to hear that phrases that I grew up hearing in church are actually in the Bible, all right? That's one thing, that's, that's, that's encouraging. The Bible says that, or not the Bible says, uh, we're back on track here. Did you know that there are 100 billion galaxies within the observable universe? Over 100 billion galaxies within the observable universe. Now, that word observable throws me off because that's the only stuff that we know about, right? That's the only stuff that we can see. Now, I can't speak for all of y'all, but that's kind of scary to me, right? Just the, the kind of the fear of the unknown. About a decade ago, I was on spring break in Daytona, and I was, I was walking on the beach at night. Now, you, you kind of hear how, quote-unquote, romantic it is to walk on the beach at night. And so I, I went out there, and there was nothing that was romantic about it at all. It's scary. It's, you're in the dark, and all you have are the lights to the side from the hotel or the apartments or the houses. And so as I'm walking here, and in my mind, I'm so dramatic, right? So I'm thinking something's about to come out and get me, right, as I hear the waves crashing. So I'm, I'm scared out of my mind. I can, I can hardly see anything. Check this out. Between the billions of galaxies, the 7.7 .7 billion people in the world, and the 20,000 leagues under the sea, it's hard to believe that God sees you and is concerned about you as an individual. 
But the psalmist tells us that God forms the hearts of all and considers everything that we do. Around the 17th and 18th centuries, people thought that they had life figured out. No differently now, right? This particular time was known as the Enlightenment period. And during this period, the philosophers and the thinkers, they came together and they put their heads together and they came to a conclusion. They affirmed the existence of God. Say, yes, yes, God, God exists. They recognized him as the creator and the uncaused cause. But they said that God did not interact with humanity. In other words, God was behind creation, but he just set it and let it run like a clock, almost as if God has a que sera, sera mentality, whatever it will be, will be. By the way, that's one of me and Logan's favorite songs. Can I just take a moment to encourage you this morning by saying that God sees you? And not only does he see you, but is concerned about you as well. Even if, as we consider all the people that we see in the galaxies discovered and undiscovered, God is not far from you. One of the greatest strategies of the devil is to get you to think that God is not concerned about you, that he does not care about you, or that he is done with you, that he doesn't want to have anything to do with you. And let's be honest. The devil is very good at his job. He's the father of lies, and what he is attempting to do is remove your dependence from God so that he can get you on an island all by yourself to discourage you. I can't tell you how many people have said that God hates them because he did not intervene in their situations how they thought that he should. Ladies and gentlemen, we have many examples to look at in scriptures. Let's quickly look at three. First one, Hagar running for her life because of someone else's foolish decisions and ultimately not trusting God. She's out in the wilderness, afraid and pregnant in the middle of nowhere. And then according to scripture, the angel of the Lord found her in the wilderness. Now, based off of my research and studies, when we see that phrase, the angel of the Lord, in the Old Testament, it's referring to the pre-incarnate Christ. We talked about this a couple of weeks at Bible study. It's called a Christophany. God meets her right where she was. Can you imagine the amount of betrayal that she felt? Her only place of comfort and safety instantly became became a place of danger. The one that she served instantly became her enemy. And she runs out to a spring in the middle of nowhere only to be met by God. And then we see a couple of chapters later where she's out in the wilderness again, this time with her young son, Ishmael, whose name means God hears. And the boy is facing death due to a lack of resources. She leaves him under a bush and walks off so that she doesn't have to see him die. And then it happens again. God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God intervened once again, showing her where water was. God sees. Secondly, let's look at John the Baptist, in prison, looking for answers. He sends his disciples to go ask Jesus if he was the promised Messiah. And Jesus indirectly answered John's question by telling his disciples to tell him everything they've heard and seen. So, of course, they go back with their report. And this is where, we get, this is where it gets interesting. We know what happened to John the Baptist. We know how he died. He was beheaded at the order of Herod's wife. 
But check this out. When John's disciple left Jesus, he addressed the crowd concerning John. He said, among those born of women, there has arisen no greater or none greater than John the Baptist. Now, how does that work? How does, how does Jesus recognize this man, his, his own cousin, with such honor, but allow him to be killed? Now, I don't want to speculate or read too much into it, but what if it wasn't necessarily the quickest death? What if it, what if it took a couple swings? It's not as if they were actually concerned about him at that point, right? I know they had sharp stuff, but stuff happens. It's quite possible that John the Baptist died a gruesome death. And I can only imagine what was going through his mind leading up to his death. Jesus' last words to John through his disciples were, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It would be easy to say that God was not concerned about him simply off the fact that he was killed, but John the Baptist was given comfort even on his deathbed. Even if there is not a fairy tale ending, he knew that he was seen by his Savior. God sees. And we'll bring it home with another example. Same situation, different person. Paul is in prison, and he's writing to one of his favorite groups of people, the church at Philippi. And he's encouraging them, saying that he knows that through their prayers and with the Holy Spirit, his situation will turn out for his deliverance. He goes on to say that he will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, Christ will be honored in his body, whether by life or by death. Now, 2019, can you imagine Paul giving that speech in a room full of profess professing believers? Now, I can hear it now. If we're doing this in sound bites or in tweets, Paul is up here saying, I know that this will work out for my good. And I can just hear a room full of people. Let's, matter of fact, let's try this, right? I want you to clap as if, you know, something, something amazing has happened. I know that this will work out for my good. It's good stuff. Christ will be honored in my body. Whether by life or death. See what I mean? I had like two claps. Now, why was Paul able to say this? I believe that he understood two things. First, that God was not removed from him, nor unconcerned about him if he were killed. Paul just didn't see life as something to hold on to because he knew that there was something greater awaiting him. Now, Paul puts me to shame because... I'm naturally trying to preserve my life. Something that I do naturally. And Paul said for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. Secondly, Paul understood that God does what God does for God's glory. And God's glory does not always mean your comfort. Some years ago, I remember seeing a billboard for a heating and a cooling company. And their slogan was, your comfort is our number one priority. In that moment, I was reminded that that is not the case for God. God is not necessarily concerned primarily with our comfort before his glory. God is for God, which means that God is for his glory. 
And sometimes that involves situations that aren't the most comfortable for us. Let's also remember Paul's history with the Philippian church. He was in prison in Philippi with Silas when the earthquake came and they didn't run. So it would have been easy for the Philippians to associate God's glory only with being delivered from one's problem, not in being delivered in the midst of one's problem. Either way, God sees. We can find joy in the fact that God sees us and will do what's best for his glory, even when it does not feel like it. God speaks and God creates. God sees. And my last point is that God saves. We see this as we consider verses 16 through 19 of our text, which reads, No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who hope in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. I think we actually kind of talked about this in our Sunday school class. How often do you reflect on the fact that you are saved? How often do you actually sit down and reflect on the fact that you are saved? Justin Salk illustrates this well. Now imagine you were in Egypt just after the Exodus, just after the first Passover. If you stopped the Israelites in those days and asked, who are you and what's happening here, what would they have said? They would have said something like this. I was a slave. I was under the power of a cruel master. I was under the sentence of death. But in his grace and mercy, God sent a deliverer. I took shelter under the blood of the lamb, and I escaped that bondage. And now God lives in our midst, and we are following him to receive our inheritance in the glorious promised land. Does that sound about what, about what an Israelite would have said then? All right. And my question to you, Christian, is does this sound familiar? Do you recognize this language and this accent? Who are you, Christian? And what has happened to you? Are these words not true for you as well? I was a slave. I was under the power of a cruel master. I was under the sentence of death. But in his grace and mercy, God sent a deliverer. I took shelter under the blood of the lamb and I escaped that bondage. And now God lives in our midst and we are following him to receive our inheritance in the glorious promised land. What a God, what a salvation he has worked for his people for his glory. Now I'm convinced that we often lack joy because we lack appreciation of the greatest thing that God has done for us. Another way of saying this is that we make a, a small deal out of what really is a big deal. Unfortunately, Especially for those, I'm not just picking on people who grew up in church. I grew up in church, so naturally it's going to come out and stuff I say. All right, people? For those who grew up in church, we often think of salvation as something that is hereditary or something that is just to be understood. So when people ask us if we're a Christian, they ask us if we're, if, if, if we're saved, they say, oh, of course I'm a Christian, almost as if they're offended by the question, right? 
Of course I'm a, I'm a Christian. My mom and dad had us in church all the time, and I served on this team and that team, and I got baptized eight times because I was afraid that I lost my salvation all the other times. What I'm saying is that sometimes we are way too cavalier about the fact that God, the God of creation, the God that sees us and the God who spoke things that are not as though they were, we speak cavalier about that same God saving us. As a matter of fact, that's what God does in salvation. He speaks life into those who were dead. According to 1 Corinthians 1.28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence, presence of God. Now, I've heard salvation illustrated as this, and I, and I think that this illustration helps minimize the great reality of salvation. Imagine being in the ocean. The wind is strong, the waves are forceful, and you are constantly going under. When you think that all hope is lost, someone throws you a donut. In order to preserve your life, you grab hold of that donut and hold to it tightly because you know that this is your only way to safety. Well, that's what Jesus did for us. We were sinking in sin, and Jesus made himself available to us to save us. Now, that's a good illustration, but that's not how the Bible paints the story of our salvation. So let's try this again in the same setting. Imagine being in the ocean, the wind is strong, the waves are forceful, and you are constantly under. You're not constantly going under. You're not bobbing. You're just constantly under. You are at the bottom of the ocean floor laying lifeless, and there is no hope for you. But then someone goes out of their way to go to the depths of the ocean, find you, and successfully bring you back to life. Now that is how the Bible paints the picture of our salvation. That's the gospel. Now the Bible says that we were dead. I'm not an expert in the matter. But I've been to my fair share of funerals. Dead people don't do nothing. If you look at them long enough, it looks like they're breathing. Looks kind of scary. He's breathing. He's not. He's not. Dead people don't do anything. They're lifeless. They're useless. And so were all of us before Christ gave us life. Now listen to me carefully because I don't want you to misunderstand anything that I'm saying right now. Salvation is the greatest good that God can give us. Salvation is the greatest good that God can give us. God has not failed you if you are not rich. God has not failed you if you do not get a promotion. God did not fail you if you are not in the best health. Salvation is the greatest good that God can give us. Now, how do I know this? When we think about the thief on the cross, are we happy that he has the greatest gift that he could have ever gotten before leaving this earth? Or do we think about different ways that his life could have been blessed outside of salvation? We rejoice at the fact that in his last moments on earth, he gained assurance of salvation from Christ himself. Now, don't get me wrong. Desires don't have to be bad. 
I'm not against wanting things. I want a number of things. But those desires are nothing less than idolatry if they eclipse God's work of salvation in my life. God saves and God keeps. The grace that saves you is the same grace that keeps you. God didn't save us expecting us to continue his work of redemption. He's smarter than that. We would have all blown it if that was the case. That is why he is the author and the, finish it for me, finisher of our faith. That is why he who began a good work in us will complete it. Remembering God's work of salvation in our lives should lead us to joy. That's not a cop-out. That's not an easy way to, to, to get out of things. That's not the easy way out. Rather, it should stir something within us, similar to the Israelites, fresh after the first Passover. We do ourselves a disservice when we don't see salvation as an amazing feat of God. When we recognize salvation for what it is, joy is a reasonable response. Ultimately, there's a, a theme that ties all of these points together, and that theme is love. God's constant love for us. God's perfect, eternal, unchanging, holy, righteous love. If you are in Christ, God loves you with the same love that he has for his son. If you're not in Christ, look to Christ, repent and turn from your sins. Shoot, if you are in Christ, repent and turn from your sins. God speaks, God sees, God saves. May we be a people who look outside of ourselves for hope and ultimate joy. May we be a people who trust God as the one who speaks, creates, and authors. May we find joy in the fact that God was wise enough to not burden us with that responsibility. May we find joy in the fact that God sees us even when it doesn't feel like it. May we not see troubles in this world as a sign that God does not care about us, but remember that he warned us that we would have them. And finally, brothers and sisters, may we find joy in the fact that God initiates salvation on our behalf and has sustained us and will sustain us as well. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Let's pray with me. God, thank you for being a God who sees us. Thank you for being a God who speaks and creates and who has not burdened us with that task. Thank you for being a God who has saved us. God, I pray that we won't see salvation as this small thing. God, I pray that we won't take the fact that you have saved us for granted. But God, I pray that we will be able to rest in that. And I pray, God, that that would lead us to joy. For anyone who is not a believer in, in this room right now, God, I pray that you would work within their hearts and help them see their sin and their need for a Savior. God, I pray that they will be able to rejoice at this same salvation that you have given others. God, I pray that we would be encouraged in our journey. God, I pray that we would see you for who you are and learn to trust you 
even when it's difficult. It's in your son Jesus' name I pray. Amen.